I want to personally thank you for taking time out of your search for toilet paper to be here today. <laughs> I've instructed the ushers to check all bags on the way out to make sure we still have our supply in the bathrooms. It's been quite a week, hasn't it? Um, I tend to be a little bit skeptical, and so I feel like this is a bit contrived. However, I do want to say this, regardless of my personal opinions, uh, we're going to, we plan to have church until uh, authorities say no mass gatherings or something like that, and we'll honor the government. They're not asking us not to have church. They're, this is a, it would be a cross the board thing if it happened, if it if they happen to ask us not to have mass gatherings. And so right now our plan is we have Sunday school. Mike is teaching Proverbs in his class. And next week my class will be looking at tools for Bible study. And so you're welcome to come to Sunday school. And then we'll have worship service again unless the government authorities tell us otherwise. We, we plan to be here and um, see how things go. Now my personally, I'll just say this, I think... This is a little bit generated, this uh, what's going on. And I know that these kits are going to be coming out in mass. These, uh, and I have a feeling that when the kits come out, the number of cases is going to spike. And I don't think it's going to be because there's a massive increase, but because there's a number of kits have increased. But we all know how that's going to play out in the media, right? But uh, anyway, um, we'll keep praying for people and pray for our government authorities and praying for one another, right? And then go on. But um, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul offers vital pastoral counsel for every Christian who has ever struggled in a life of holiness. Put your hand up if you don't struggle to live a life of holiness. All right? Thank you very much for not raising your hand. I was scheduling counseling this week. I'm very free now. So these words that, that you, um, these words that we're about to, to read and to discuss and to preach, you're going to find useful and helpful. We all know that we're called to a life of practical godliness, but we know that understanding the call to, to holiness and actually living it out are two very different things, isn't it? We, we have a fight on our hands. Tell me if this is not you. We, we love our sin, and yet we love the Lord. We want to please Him, and yet we want to indulge in our sin. It's getting quiet in here. But it's, it's a universal human condition, isn't it? And there's a fight. And the Apostle Paul uh, talks about it in, in Romans chapter 7. He says, For I do not do the good that I want. He, he says, I find myself torn and conflicted. There's a war. He says later on, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. For you keep doing the things that you want to do. There's a, there's a conflict inside each of us. And that conflict and that battle with the old life certainly describes the believers at the church in Corinth. They were struggling to shake off old patterns of sin that had 
once dominated their lives. Their pride and their boasting, if you remember in chapters 1 to 4, um, was affecting their fellowship. Uh, they resulted in factionalism and divisions and fractures of the fellowship. They claim spiritual, superior spiritual insight and wisdom, and yet they seemed indifferent to, to members of the church engage in open, scandalous sexual sin, failing to love them enough to practice faithful biblical church discipline. And meanwhile, their petty squabbles, as we saw last week, their petty squabbles degenerated so far as to bring them to public courts as, as believers sued believer and brought the gospel in disrepute as they tried to gain advantage over others. And as we'll see, God willing, next time in the remainder of chapter 6, some of them were even continuing to make use of prostitutes that worked in the temple of Aphrodite in the city of Corinth. Corinth. And it is this is a church that is simply riddled with moral failure and compromise and worldliness. And so in our passage this morning, chapter 6, verses 9 to 11 that Jamie just read, the Apostle Paul wants to um, place in the Corinthian hands and in our hands some scriptural weapons that we can use to continue the war against sin and to help us win more than we lose. Wouldn't that be great? If you look at the passage, you'll see it's divided naturally into two main sections. In verses 9 and 10, there's a warning. There's a warning that, that we need to hear. And then in verse number 11 is a reminder, and it's a reminder of grace. And we also very urgently need, need to hear that, that reminder. And so there's a warning and a reminder. Well, let's, let's look at the warning, first of all. The warning in verses 9 and 10, um, there, one of the great temptations when you come to this passage, is to focus prematurely on that list of sins that will exclude a person from the kingdom of heaven and skip right to the, the nature of the problem uh, itself in Corinth. And we, we talked about the problem last week. There was a repeated question. Do you remember what that repeated question was that we looked at last week? He kept asking them, do you not know? He asked them that in verse number two. Do you not know? He asked it again in verse number three and again in, in verse number nine, again in verse number 15 and 16, and again in verse number 19. And so over and over in this passage, Paul asks them, do you not know? That is to say, they ought have known some of the truths that Paul considered foundational and elementary, but they seemed somehow to be ignorant of it. And so they had forgotten them. They had looked over them. And, and the problem that they had that we talked about last week is that they had gospel amnesia. They had forgotten who Christ was and their identity in Jesus Christ. These truths they had ought to have remembered but had forgotten. And so what, what he warned them then in verses 9 and 10 here is to not minimize sin. And in verse number 9, the particular problem uh, that their theological amnesia seems to have led them to is the minimization, listen, minimization of the sinfulness of sin. The absolute necessity of holiness if a person is to have any hope of heaven. Listen to what he says. Look at, read it with me. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous 
will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's his question. Now, Paul's going to drive that point home in different ways in these two verses. But I want you to notice, first of all, very simply, what happens when gospel amnesia leads us to forget the foundational truths of the gospel. This, this theological forgetfulness creates a vacuum in our thinking that must be filled. If you do not fill your minds with the proper thing, there's a vacuum that's going to be filled. And if it's not filled by biblical truth, then the danger is that it will be filled instead by lies, by error, by deception. And so Paul says in verse number 9, look at what he says. It's the only command in, in these three verses. He says, be, do not be deceived or be not deceived. That's the command. He knows that if they've forgotten theological truths, the truths of the gospel, and that they've been well taught and instructed in, the great danger is that they're going to be deceived. And so when you don't fill your mind with Scripture, with Bible truth, and remember who Jesus Christ is, you are leaving yourselves open to self-deception. And so don't minimize sin is the first thing. The second thing that we do that, that he commands is to be careful not to adjust our convictions in order to accommodate our sin. Now, there are some stages that you see with the Corinthians that are true of our lives, too, when it comes to the adjustments that we make in our thinking. And remember that the, uh, the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so your thinking is so critical. And with the Corinthians, what he sees is that, number one, they, they ignore basic truths or they forget them or they simply overlook basic biblical truth. They fall prey to gospel amnesia. Then the second thing they do is into that theological vacuum, that vacuum in their thinking creates a deadly deception. Since they did not listen to the truth, they begin to listen to lies. We constantly have to combat against listening to lies. One of the, 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 the best lies that we hear all the time, and by best, I mean most effective, is one I talked about last week, which is the continual lie that the world feeds us that this life is all there is. That you need to pour everything you have into that little point that I marked on this wall last week right here. If you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. Happy still hasn't forgiven me about that. <laughs> and and that, that's a lie. And if, if you're not filling your mind with the, 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 um, the, the command and, and the instruction to be eternally minded, you're going to fall into deception of the lie to be earthly minded. And so we have to be careful of that. They, they began then to adjust their convictions to accommodate their preference for sin. They love their sin. And since the call to radical holiness no longer seems to have mattered to them, maybe a different set of convictions um, 
would be embraced that will accommodate their sin more fully instead. And so when you, when you think about it, when you begin to make that kind of a convictional accommodation, an accommodation in your thinking, you no longer have a sin problem. You now have a God problem. Right? He... And the God problem is this. You might be misinterpreting, so let me explain it. What happens when you have a God problem is that what God thinks about your sin is no longer important. I no longer care as much about what God thinks of my life and my sin, you see. That's, that's the God problem that we have. It becomes inconvenient and, and so when, when that way of thinking really gets a hold of us and we're not careful, we start to adjust our convictions, our doctrine, to make room for our morality because our morality is different from um, our doctrine in the way that we think. And so Paul tells them, do not be deceived. Don't lie to yourselves. And what's the lie that he's combating? He says, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Sexual promiscuity, adultery, which is sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, those things were so normal in Corinth so universal that the believers in the church had a hard time resisting the relentless cultural pressure and to make allowances. And to begin to tell themselves that the claims of Jesus on their lives really had to be adjusted to fit their Greco-Roman context. You can imagine them trying patiently to explain how things really go to the Apostle Paul, couldn't you? Yeah, Paul, that works great in Palestine where you got a bunch of really strict Jews on these matters, but we live in Corinth. The culture's different here, and it's just not going to fly here. And so, Paul, your, your strictness is just not going to work. This is Corinth. No, you see, Paul, sex outside of marriage and homosexuality and adultery, they, they might cause scandal in Jerusalem, but in our metropolitan city, that's no big deal. You can't seriously expect us to refuse a bribe, can you, Paul? That's just the way that you do business here. Paul, you've got to understand, if you live in Corinth, you have to, to fit into the culture. And so what if we drink more wine than you're accustomed to in Palestine? So what if we get a little tipsy? So what if we get a little inebriated? That's just the way things go in Corinth. Does that sound familiar? doesn't sound any different, does it, than it does today. There's a relentless cultural pressure. And so on and on it goes. And certain accommodations have to be made. And the problem is that sin at first is overlooked, and then it's tolerated, and then it's indulged, and then it's positively infer, uh, affirmed. It's not sin any longer. And, and pretty soon it becomes a, a good thing until the real center here is the Apostle Paul. And he's the real sinner because he's a narrow-minded bigot. Hmm. 
That sounds just like the culture we live in. Literally, in the last um, decades, morality has been turned on its head to where the things that were immoral in society are now the morality, and now what's moral is immoral. And so if, if you push against somebody's, a man's choice to marry another man, you are now a bigot. And I could go on and on. It's literally flipped on its head. It's, it's amazing uh, the way that happens. And so Paul wants to help us understand that however plausible the world's arguments are against what the Bible calls sin, the Bible calls it sin, and the world says it's not sin, however plausible the world's arguments may be, Paul wants us to understand that the consequences of embracing sin as a way of life, the consequences are eternal in their scope. They are eternal in their scope. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Quite literally, eternity is at stake here. Eternity is at stake. And so, this, this is what Paul's reminding them of. It's, it's, it's a warning. It's a warning that eternity is at stake. Now, there's a relationship going on here. Right in the middle of this list, as you, as you read, right in the middle of this list, you got these sexual sins, and right in the middle, he has idolatry. Do you notice that? It seems kind of out of place, doesn't it? You got this sexual sin, that sexual sin, and right in the middle, you got idolatry. Well, what's going on there? Well, I want you to think about this. Notice that um, idolatry is right in the middle, and it seems like an odd thing that you're talking about sexual sins, but it's only odd when you remember that what dominated the religious life of Corinth. And what dominated the religious life of Corinth is the temple to Aphrodite. And in that temple were quite literally hundreds of temple prostitutes. And part of that worship was sexual immorality, and part of that worship was homosexuality. Both were together. And so the idolatry that he mentions here fits perfect with the current social context because that was part of the pagan worship. It was normal in worship to engage in this kind of sexual sin. And so it was quite literally a form of idolatry. Now, but don't you think that in our current cultural moment, the link that Paul makes here between idolatry and sexual sin is relevant in our age as well? After all, the politics of sexual identity dominates the nightly news, doesn't it? Well, not anymore. Coronavirus does. But before that. After all, um, it, it dictates the outcome of elections. Sex is entertainment on our television screens. It's a, it's a marketing tool in our advertisements. Pornography is epidemic, and Christians who adhere to biblical norms for, for human sexuality are hounded out of the public square and penalized for believing what the church has confessed for two millennia. 
Sex is just as much an idol today in our age as it was to the Corinthians. So it's very useful to understand that the sex obsession in Paul's day and in ours is in fact a form of idolatry. It's a form of false worship. It's a form of self-worship in a way. The second thing is that there's a depth to the sin. The depths to the sin. When Paul speaks about the vices, I want you to notice, look at the vices. He doesn't actually name the sins. Did you notice that? He doesn't name the sins. He names people who are defined by those sins. Did you see that? He doesn't talk about sexual immorality, does he? He talks about the sexually immoral. He doesn't talk about greed. He talks about the greedy. He doesn't talk about fraud. He talks about swindlers. You see, sin is so very dangerous, eternally dangerous, as Paul points out, precisely because it's a matter of more than just mere behavior. Um, in fact, it's, it's a matter of identity. It doesn't go skin deep. The sin right here goes to the roots of who we are. And Paul is telling us that while we believe and tell ourselves the reason we pursue these things is because we think that they will make us free, Paul is actually telling us the contrary is, to, is true, that the sin that we love and pursue make, we may, and make idols of, in the end, it, it enslaves us doesn't it? And so they, they, they come to dominate us. They come to define us. Uh, we become unrighteous, and so we become greedy. We become revilers. We become swindlers and adulterers and homosexuals. It's not a problem of, of activity. It's not a problem of merely behavior. It's a problem of identity, which means that we are much, um, much well, we're much worse than we realized. Our sin problem goes all the way to the roots of who we are, and it's just not a problem of what we do. And so that's why the kingdom of God excludes human beings who are defined by their sin, enslaved by their sin, because sin is an identity problem. If you look at verse number nine again, this is interesting. In the original Greek, there's an interesting sentence structure. And it's, it's really difficult to translate in English without it sounding like Yoda. You know, Yoda, you know, Yoda, how he speaks with a verb in the wrong place, right? But in the original Greek, the word unrighteous in verse number nine and the word God are right next to one another as a contrast. And so here's the real problem. The unrighteous and God stand utterly alienated from one another. They're incompatible. And so the sentence would read like this. You ready? This is my Yoda speak. Do you not know that the unrighteous, God's kingdom will not inherit? Do you not know that the unrighteous, God's kingdom will not inherit? That's literally the way the verse reads. The, the unrighteous and God are incompatible. Sin excludes us from the kingdom of God. And Paul wants us to understand if we think that we don't have a sin problem, 
after all, that sin can be accommodated and indulged and pursued, then Paul wants us to understand that the truth is that we have an insurmountable God problem. <coughs> we will be excluded from the kingdom of God. And so there's a warning here, and it's a sober warning. And it says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, if it stopped there, if I stopped the sermon here, that would really be unfair, wouldn't it? Because he offers a word of warning, but he offer, offers also a reminder of grace. And this is what I love. There's a wonderful reminder. Would you look at verse number 11 with me, please? Because he says this. He says, such were some of you. Amen? Isn't that wonderful? Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. It seems that their gospel amnesia led the Corinthians to forget not just the danger that the sin exposed them to, but also led them to forget the radical transformation that the grace uh, brings. Such were some of you. He reminds them. The sins he listed, they once defined them. They were these things. That's actually very much how our, our society tends to think today, isn't it? One of, one of the distinctive cultural motifs of our age is the, is the way that we self-identify. And there's a, a kernel of truth in that cultural motif. The issue here is one of identity. And so literally, in our culture, we hear people identify. Literally, LGBT is, a sin, is an identification of this is my sinful bent. And the people are exposing biblical truth more than they would ever imagine. Have you ever thought about that? They would hate the fact if they could read their Bibles and understand what those letters and how they identify is actually playing right into a Bible truth. It's a self-identity problem. Let me say this. I wasn't going to say it, but I got to. Okay, I love this organization because of the good it does, but I have one big problem with the way that they identify. The 12-step program. That one, what do they say? I am, you know what they say? I am an alcoholic, okay? Now, they do it to help the person not get drunk again. But if you think about it from a biblical perspective, that's the wrong way of thinking. I was an alcoholic, and by God's grace, I am not now, because now I'm a child of Christ. You see the difference in the thinking there? And I don't know how familiar you are. Please don't go out here saying, I think the program is bad. I don't think it's bad. That's just one point that I do disagree with that they, they do. But there's a reminder of grace. Um, the issue is identity, and it's not the identity that we invent or we discover or choose for ourselves. The, the issue here is the identity given to us either by the sin that we enslaves us or by the gospel that sets us free. And so let me ask you, what do you identify with? Do you identify with the sin that enslaves or do you identify with the gospel that sets free? Because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's a tremendous freedom. 
Now the Corinthians, it seems, continued to want to identify themselves by, one they, by what they once were instead of who they are in Christ. And their sin continued to dominate the way they thought of their identity, not Jesus. And so Paul is emphatic here, isn't he? He says, such were some of you. When you became Christians, your dominating, enslaving sin no longer runs your life and rules your life and no longer defines who you are. Its mastery was broken and now you're set free. Now that you're a believer in Christ, um, it no longer defines who you are. By the grace of God, and praise the Lord, that is so true. You, dear believer, are not who you once were. When you define yourself by your old sin, by your old life, you're actually handing the weapons of the enemy against your soul back to them to use against you. When you continue to define yourself, I'm a, I'm a gay Christian, I'm a drunk Christian, I'm an angry Christian, I'm a greedy Christian, you make sin a modifier of grace. You're saying, yes, I'm a Christian, but my sin still modifies it all. I continue to be mastered by it. It continues to play a role in what the Bible simply calls me not to do any longer. And, and that's a lie. That's a deception that Paul is calling the Corinthians to avoid. Jesus is Lord of your life. You are not who you once were. What does the Bible say? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You can answer that. The ceiling will not fall on you. If anyone is a Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. You are not who you once were, and it's time to start living in light of your new identity. Now, I want to point out something else here in this passage. This is, this is wonderful. Not only were you something else, but something else happened in the past, and that is you were washed now, sometimes when we struggle to shake off our past, it's because of a faulty understanding of Christian conversion. We tend to think that we are Christians because we chose for ourselves to come to Jesus Christ. Now, please listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. We many times think that we made it happen, that we chose Christ, that we decided to be in Christ. But with, when Paul lists those sins, look at what he says in verse number 11. He says, such were some of you, but he doesn't say, look at what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, but you washed yourself. He doesn't say you sanctified yourself. He doesn't say you justified yourself. If that were true, then it would be legitimate for us to wonder day after day whether or not Jesus actually offered the gospel um, if I continue to define myself by something else. Um, but that's not the truth. The truth is that you, listen, were washed. The truth is that you were sanctified. The truth is that you were justified. God in sovereign grace broke into the midst of your slavery to sin and set you free. Isn't that what we see in the Exodus? God broke into their lives and he delivered them and only he could have done that. And so 
He set you apart for a life of holiness and joy and service to Him. He counted you righteous in His sight because the righteousness of Christ was reckoned to you and you received it as a gift by faith alone. He did it once and for all. The verb tenses here are important. They mean that each one of these things happened at a definitive point of time and it's settled once for all. It's settled in the past. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You were set apart, consecrated for a holy life. You were justified never to be, never to be repeated, never to be able to be lost. You're clean, clean in the sight of God, clean in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, you are clean, and that's who you really are. That's who you really are in Jesus Christ. Amen. And so we can, you can come as you are. You can come as you are, but you don't leave that way. It's helpful because it tells us that there is no one beyond the grace of God. You come to Jesus as you are. There is no one who is too great a sinner for Jesus Christ. You come as you are to Him. Sin and all. Your sin never excludes you from being welcomed by Jesus Christ. You feel the bite of it. You feel the shame of it. The shame is real and it's overwhelming. The, the thought that He wouldn't want me, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at who I've been. Look at how I've treated others. Look at how I've treated myself. No way would Jesus want me. But read the list again. Such were some of you. Crooks, swindlers, thieves, homosexuals, idolaters. The Corinthian church <coughs> was full of them. And can I say this? Providence Bible Church is full of them. People who were these things. The kingdom of heaven is full of them as well. What a wonderful truth that is. Now there are no idolaters. Now there are no sexually immoral people in heaven. But heaven is full of people who were once. Such were some of you. There is hope for the worst of us in Jesus Christ. He loves to take guilty sinners and make them clean. He loves to wash you clean. So come to Jesus dirty. Come to Jesus ashamed. Come to Jesus fearful. Come to Jesus with your sin intact and let Him do it all. He will wash you so that you will feel the filthy. Um, though you feel filthy, it will go away. He will make you clean. He will sanctify you so that where you once felt that you were utterly enslaved to your sin, He will set you apart to a life that runs different. And it's, it's an entirely different set of principles. Along a different set of, of, of um, train lines. Heading a different direction. Where your guilt dominated you. Blotted out your horizon. You were so ashamed. He will robe you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. And though Christ were to take off his own garments and wrap them around your filthy rags of righteousness. That's literally the biblical picture. He robed you with his robes of righteousness. Amen. And by the way, those robes of righteousness 
are made splendid with the beauty of His perfect obedience in Jesus Christ. His perfect righteousness is beautiful. And you're, if you've come to Christ, you're wrapped in it. God will look at you and not see your sin, but see you shining with the radiance of His own Son. And He loves to do that for sinners. He loves to do that for guilty sinners. There's no one beyond the reach of the grace of Jesus Christ. So come guilty sinner. Find welcome in Him. It's helpful for guilty, shameful, fearful, broken sinners to come to Jesus Christ. Let me give you one last thing. God will change you. It's helpful for believers like the Corinthians to to feel who they once were. It's let me rephrase that. It's helpful for those who feel who they were is who they must always be. It's helpful. You ever feel like that? Let me ask you a question. Do you ever feel like I am never going to be anything but X, and you name that sin that besets you. I would imagine that almost everyone feels that way at one point or another, don't we? And it is a beautiful, wonderful thing that you don't have to say, think to yourself, tomorrow will be the same as yesterday. That the sin that tripped you up and characterized you and defined you will always trip you up and characterize you and define you. It is not so. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Not only will Jesus forgive, He will change you. He will change you so that tomorrow, by His grace, you will not be who you once were. He will make you like Himself. There is hope for you. Nowhere else but in the Gospel. Sin enslaves you, defines you, and dominates you, but Jesus Christ gives you a new identity. He makes you a new creature and gives you a hope and a tomorrow that is bright and beautiful. And His character will shine through your life. So turn, whether you're a Christian or not today, turn away from yourself Turn away from the wretched filth of your sin to Jesus Christ. Let Him wash you. Let Him set you apart for His service and robe you with His perfect righteousness and get your head up and get your eyes on Jesus Christ and get your eyes off the sin and be joyful, dear Christian, because your sin does not define you. Amen? Let's pray. We thank you, Jesus, for this wonderful passage And while it's so easy to focus upon that list of sins that exclude us from heaven, and all of us have been captivated at one time or another by one of these sins, we have a new identity in Jesus Christ. We are robed with His righteousness. We are cleansed and purified. And Lord, in Jesus and in His power, we can be free from the sin that enslaves us and be free to serve Christ with all of our might. Lord, I know that even this morning, sitting here today, is somebody who walked in here discouraged about their sin. That sin that they feel trips them up, and they're wondering to themselves, am I going to always deal with this sin? Lord, encourage that person in their new identity in Christ 
Strengthen them to resist that sin. Give them eyes to see the beauty of your righteousness and to think of their sin in the same terms that you do, that they won't minimize the sin, that they won't accommodate their sin, that they won't take on the world's thinking about their sin, but rather, Lord, they'll think about their sin in the same terms that you do. Lord, give us joy in the truth that we are in Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.